The scripture today comes from Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 30. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and settled near a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He married her and went in to her. She conceived and bore a son and named him Ur. Again, she conceived and bore a son, whom she named Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she named him Shelah. She was in Shazib when she bore him. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went in to his brother's wife, so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. In course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she got up and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the kid, goat, by his friend the Adulamite to recover the pledge from the woman, he could not find her. He asked the townspeople, where is the prostitute who was at a name by the wayside? But they said, no prostitute has been here. 
So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Moreover, the townspeople said, no prostitute has been here. So Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, otherwise we will be laughed at. You see, I sent this kid and you could not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has prostituted herself. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of prostitution. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. It was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, take note, please, who these, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not lie with her again. When the time of her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. While she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and bound on his hand a crimson thread, saying, This one came out first. But just then he drew back his hand, and out came his brother. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the crimson thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Kudos to Lisa for reading all those names. That was pretty amazing. Good job. All right. What do you think when you read this, when you hear this this morning? Isn't it weird? It's a weird one, right? I think so too. Thank you. That's right. What else? Yes. Yes, yes, there is that. What I read was a lot of scholars think the reason it's kind of, you have this whole narrative of Joseph, you stop with chapter 38 and the story of Judah, and then we go back to Joseph, and it feels like this huge whiplash, like what was that all about? But uh, from some of the scholars that I read believe that he is para- the writers are paralleling um, the deception that Judah perpetrated upon his brother to his father, you know, and, and Judah was the one that said, okay, let's not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. How about that? That was Judah that did that. So he was deceiving his father, and then Judah gets deceived. But then also Judah winds up being the one that the bloodline from King David comes from. So there's a little bit of deception and tomfoolery and craziness and stupid patriarchy and then redemption on the other side of all of it for both of them. 
What else? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. That's right. That's good. Thank you. With that, though, I mean, like, did you kill these guys, or this was determined, like, who made the determination that they were evil and that they should have lived for the brothers? Say that again. Yes, yes. I'll talk about that a little bit, too. I have my own thoughts about that, too. It's weird, right? God just, the text says God killed them. Well, okay. Isn't that kind of typical for much of the Old Testament in terms of how they... That's how they thought of God. They thought of God as, yeah. Yeah, Don't true. Don't do this. Go right. How many have ever heard this particular passage used as a case for contraception? Yeah. Anyone else? I have. I grew up with that uh, kind of idea, too. I don't know that I ever heard it from, like, behind the pulpit, but certainly maybe in Bible studies, because I can't picture any pastor in my background in my past that would have preached this text from a pulpit on a Sunday morning. If it happened, oh, well, I don't remember it. But definitely probably, like, in a Sunday school class where maybe the pastor taught or somebody like that, yeah. Anybody heard it that way? Okay. Yeah. That's good. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yes. I think the language in this translation was so transparent. Yeah. Usually it's, and he knew her. Right. Right, right. Yes? How much must women have been just kind of overlooked for him to not recognize his daughter-in-law just because she was his wife? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And the fact that he never asked her, what did you think happened to my sons? I mean, the text doesn't say she told, hey, it's their fault. Your second son did this horrible thing that was against the law, Leveret law. She could have said that and she didn't. Or maybe she did and he refused to hear her. Yeah. I think it's interesting talking about Tamar today in light of what happened this past week in Southern Baptist churches, which is my home foundations. And um, I, I think it's terrible and despicable that so many women uh, have their voices silenced. It's not as important to the, to the other voices in the room. And um, I, I, we'll have a conversation about that as well. I don't know if you've been watching the news or watching any documentaries lately, but there's been some documentaries about a particular church that does a lot of really good music that a lot of us like. And 
the worship team and I and Jacob have been researching what are some alternatives that are theologically rich, uh, not necessarily from a sinless source because there's no such thing, but my heavens, do we have to endorse sexual abuse in churches? I hope not. So we're trying to look away from some of these things, not that we do a lot of that music anyway, and I'm being intentionally veiled about who that church is. If you, if you don't know, come ask me afterwards and I'll talk to you about it. So we found one group called Porter's Gate, and I say this to say probably over the next few Sundays you're going to hear some newer music because uh, we are intentionally trying to find a more ethical way to spend our CCLI money every year because these people get money from us. It's not a lot, but it's enough. And so bear with us over the next few months. You're going to hear some new music. And I'm going to ask probably for the most part that those be more contemplative, not to sing along, but for us to listen and kind of take it in. And the first uh, song that we're from the group Porter's Gate is a song called Daughters of Zion. And I ask for you, ask you to prayerfully listen this morning as Sarah and Jacob and Bradley lead in that for us. When will the truth come out? When will your justice roll down? When will your kingdom come? And evil be undone? When will the wicked kneel? And the abuse speak with no more shame or fear how long how long when will the daughters of Zion rejoice in the house of the Lord Justice roll down. Let your 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 justice roll down. Let 
Let your justice roll down. 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 How long, how long, when will the daughters of Zion rejoice? In the house of the Lord. Wasn't that good? Have you, ever heard, have you ever heard a song that talked about the abuse of women in church? I mean, wow. It's pretty amazing. And please feel free. If you run across some music that you think, this, this, might, this might be a thing, send it to us. Um, there's more than these small, not small, they're pretty huge churches, these small churches that we follow that uh, we could we could find an alternative. All right, so tomorrow. I was uh, meeting with Rabbi Bryna Milkow a couple of weeks ago and uh, with my friend Rob Collins, who's the pastor at First Baptist Peoria, and um, she was asking Rob and I what we were doing for the summer in, in sermons, and I said, oh, I said, I'll tell you, but I don't really want you to judge me when I tell you what it is. I mean, this is a legit rabbi, people. Okay, so I was very intimidated, very. We didn't have Jewish people in Mississippi, okay? So I was very intimidated. And I say, we're doing we're a sermon series called Weird, People's Do, Weird People Doing Weird Things, and she bust out laughing. She loved it. She thought it was so delightful. She even, she even gave me a couple of people that I had not thought about that would be really good for this series that I'm probably going to use in July. So I'm excited about that, but... So I, she said, so who have you used? And I told her that we've used J.L. and Balaam and Tamar. <laughs> she said, who? <laughs> it's not Tamar, by the way. <laughs> I said, well, that's how we say it in Mississippi. <laughs> it is Tamar. But I was thankful. She, it wasn't in a rude, condescending, you stupid idiot kind of way, too, either, okay? Let's just, let me just say that. It was a sweet way. But I do want us to think about J.L. and Balaam and Tamar, the three that we've talked about so far. The things that were in common with them were they were all non-Israelites. And they're all three heroes in the Hebrew narrative. I think that that's an avenue that I have not thought a whole lot about growing up, and that the Hebrew narratives and the Hebrew scriptures, they elevate the voices of the other, not just their people, but the other. They were not stingy with who they shared space with in a story. J.L. was not a Jew, but yet she was a hero, and she played a vital part 
into what happened in the story of Israel, the same way with Balaam. And I think it's incredible last week that Brian taught on this, that when we hear about Balaam elsewhere in the text, even in the Hebrew Scriptures in the New Testament, his story gets completely twisted, and he's turned out to be a bad guy. But that is not what the original story of Balaam says. So there's always people out there, right, that want to kind of push a little bit of, yeah, maybe that person wasn't that good. But we have the, the, the text that says he was. He was a hero. And then the story of Tamar, I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, this woman was in, um, it was in direct lineage to King David, who was one of four women named in Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew. There's only four women besides Mary that are named in this genealogy. And she's one of them. So is Rahab, not a Jew. So was Ruth, not a Jew. So was Bathsheba, not a Jew. Interesting, right? So let's talk about Tamar a little bit. I think that, um, again, it's not a story that I ever heard preached growing up. I think uh, my southern prudishness is pretty severe right this morning, and I'm persevering anyway, but I have to say the men that I know that were pastors in the south, their prudishness far exceeded mine. So we just didn't talk about it. So what do you do with a story like this? I like that, that Brian said last week, like, what does this mean? What good? And we're like, we don't know. We don't know what that means with Balaam. And I don't know that I know that there's some kind of overarching theme or idea about Tamar. But they're there, so let's talk about them. What does that mean? We don't know, that, we don't know how or why Ur died, the firstborn son. We just read that God kills him. Um, but that is a theme in the Israelite story. The theme in the Israelite story is the firstborn, firstborn getting supplanted by the secondborn. We see it in Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is firstborn, but Isaac is the one who gets all the stuff. Esau is Isaac's firstborn, but he is deposed by Jacob, who is Judah's father. Zerah is supplanted by the secondborn, Perez. Manasseh is supplanted by Ephraim. And eventually Reuben, Reuben who is Judah's, Judah's oldest brother, Judah is one of the, the fourth one, the fourth son, he is supplanted by his other three brothers. There's this story of reversal over and over and over in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now for me to explain to you what that means, I would need a Jewish rabbi to come in here and tell you that. I can't really tell you that. But I do think it's a fascinating thought. Why does that happen? What is the point? So he dies, or the oldest son dies, and by the Leverett law, if the son dies without producing an heir, the woman must marry the brother-in-law if there is one. And the reason why it is so that that son, so Ur, his name continues on. So here's the thing, this Leverett law. If they didn't have it, the woman would, would have experienced economic deprivation and social wilderness. She's left to fend to herself. They typically don't go back to father-in-law's house. Father-in-law probably is deceased. 
So where does she go? It is a way to protect the woman, but it's also a way to perpetuate the name. So this is not just completely out of kindness for the woman, okay? There's motive both ways. So Tamar is married to the second son, Onan. Now, Onan refuses to impregnate her. And a commentary that I read said that, you know, that child technically would not be his own. It would be considered Ur's son. Even though it was biologically his, technically it wouldn't be. So if he were to impregnate Tamar and have a son by her, this son would be Ur's um, genetic offspring in their mind. He would be the one to inherit Ur's part. So some scholars think that this was merely economic. If Ur didn't have an heir, who gets the money? Well, Onan and his brother. Think about it. That moved mountains back then. Who had the money? Who had the means to survive? And so it could have been an economic one. It could have been a proud for one. I don't want my son to always be known as my brother's son. It's, technically, it's really my son. But that's what the Leverite law said. And so he disobeyed it. Now, I did catch in the verse this morning that I don't think I caught at all reading, studying it this week, that he did this more than once. I think I thought he had only done this one time, which is kind of a miracle in and of itself, right, that she gets pregnant on the first time. But the text said that whenever he did this, so he did this more than once. Am I the only one? Did anybody else see that and go, wait a minute? Did anybody else think it was just like a one and done thing? I'm probably the only one. Anyway. So evidently this was his practice. This was his habit. Um, and so he gets killed because of it. God strikes him dead. The reason it's wrong is because it's being disobedient to the Leveret law. It... Um, it causes Ur's uh, descendants to not have any descendants. He's gone, he's done, he's off the earth, it's over. And it leaves Tamar vulnerable and without protection. So naturally, as would be the course of patriarchal thinking, Judah thinks it's her fault, right? I mean, Ur could have just had a, 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 like a hidden heart defect, right? And just so happened to have died. It may have not had anything to do with God. Probably didn't. Most likely didn't. But he never considers that. That must have been her fault. The same thing with Onan. It was her fault that these two, two, two sons of his died. Well, here's the thing. What gets me about this too is that Tamara is silent in all of these things. She doesn't defend herself. She doesn't say... Well, before Ur died, he was complaining of a bad, really bad headache, and then he died. Or he, he had a heart, he was, something was going on with his chest, and then he died. None of that. She just doesn't defend herself. And then with Onan, I mean, what do you tell your father-in-law? That would kind of be embarrassing, right? But she doesn't. She doesn't do it anyway. It made me think of something this week about why she would have done that. 
And this is what I came up with. Maybe if she made herself quiet enough, biddable enough, soft enough, respectful enough, Judah would favor her. I need a woman in the house to do this. Anybody else? Have you done this? Have you made yourself small enough with a person in authority over you that you thought, okay, maybe I'll just, I got to be respectful to this jerk. We all do it. We all do it because we need something, right? And I grew up in a strictly patriarchal context um, in, in my home. I can remember as a child, I was probably eight or nine years old, and we were at a friend's house, and uh, me and the other kids in the neighborhood were in the front yard. I'm on the porch. The two boys that I'm with are kind of off the porch, closer to the street. And I guess there were some walnuts or something on the ground, and they start throwing them at cars that pass by. And I'm like, oh, God. So I just get further and further back on the porch, right? Well, one of those cars turns back around <laughs> and comes up to the house and uh, knocks on the door and says, hey, these kids are throwing walnuts at my car. Rightfully so. I'm not, but that's exactly what they should have done. And so my dad and his friend, the house we were at, they were like, well, who did it? And it was dark, by the way. It was dark. And she said, it was those two boys and that little girl. Well, I didn't do it. I never even left the porch. I wouldn't have been able to reach a car with a walnut if I threw from the porch. And my dad never asked me if that was true. He never asked me what my perspective on that matter was. But I got punished for it just the same as if I had. It was a patriarchal home. My thoughts, my stories, my idea... My explanation wasn't allowed. I get into a marriage. And, and let me just say, if I guess I should say this too, pretty sure neither of them watch, but I'm going to say what Anne Lamott always says. If you wanted me to talk more warmly about you, you should have acted better. I was a stay-at-home mom with three small children at the time. We were poor as poor can ever be. And so one night a week for groceries, we always had a frozen pizza. Always. That's what our budget allowed. I cooked pretty much every other night of the week, but one night we ate a frozen pizza. And he hated that. Absolutely hated that. And would just come home and just be like, I work hard all day long. You should, you, and I'm like, well, then make more money. I don't know what else to tell you. I can't, this, I can only make two, but that, here's the thing. I didn't dare say that. I thought it, but I didn't have the courage to say it, even though it was true. It's patriarchy. And women, we make ourselves silent and respectful, and maybe it'll blow over. Maybe they'll stop. And we see how badly patriarchy can be abusive. And so these Southern Baptist men that are all about women can never preach, women can never serve, as pastor, because of patriarchy, I want to say bullshit. Because it is. That was never God's intention for women. 
Never. It took me a long time to see that. But that is not God's intention. Tamar was a product of patriarchy. I'll make myself silent enough and maybe Judah will protect me. Now, what I just did into that text is I read into it my own context, my own perspective, my own experience, which is a good way of saying a form of eisegesis where I read into the text. Well, here's the thing. We all read into a text. We cannot shut off our culture, how we were raised, the experiences that we have had up until this point. We cannot read these scriptures without putting that in there. It is what we do. It's normal, it's natural, it's what we do. The problem is, is if we, when we do that, we actually are doing damage to the text if we do. I don't think, and you can certainly tell me afterwards if you want to, it's okay. I don't think by me doing some form of eisegesis into this text really damages it that much. But there's other ways that we can read into a text that does damage it. And when I mean damage, I mean by harms other people. That's what I'm talking about. So eisegesis is the process of interpreting text in such a way as to introduce one's own presuppositions, agendas, and biases. Reading into the text what they want it to say. Does that make sense? Anybody want to share an example of a biblical text that we know today is being read into by other people? A lot come to mind, right? A lot. That's eisegesis. Exegesis is a more critical, it's a more critical thinking about the text. It is more, okay, what has been the traditional church history thought about this text? What, how has it evolved over the centuries? What does someone of a different faith than me, how do they see this text? To be faithful students of Scripture, we have to be able to be more critical of the text and recognize when I read this text, my lens goes right into it, and I can't stop that. But that's when we get other people involved. I don't just read commentaries or blogs from people that see the world exactly the same way that I do. That's how we get this. That's how we get this presupposition and biases and agendas in here because we only are in this echo chamber of this person sees the world the way that I do or similarly to me, and that's, how I'm, that's who I'm going to learn from. We learn from somebody that stretches our thinking of, oh, I've never thought of that before. It is sitting with uh, a rabbi, <laughs> and listening to her thoughts about a text that has an experience that is so different from mine. And that's being a better student of the scripture. So thank you for going with me on that rabbit for a minute. I didn't mean to do that, but I did. So you're used to it by now probably. So anyway, um, so Tamar is actually sent back to her father-in-law's house because he tells her, Judah tells her, when my little guy, my son here grows of age, 
I'll give him to you as your husband. Never has any, any intention of doing that. She probably knows that. She goes back to her father-in-law's house. She waits years and years and years and nothing happens. And then she finds out that Judah's wife, her former mother-in-law, has died. So after a period of time, Tamar surmises that Judah might be missing some things that maybe he received in his marriage. Leave that as it is. And so she decides, well, maybe I can entice him. So that's what she does. The Bible doesn't call her a prostitute, but that's what Judah assumes she is because of the veil. (laughs) Another case of how in the world did you not know that was her? I mean, come on. Did she not speak? Did she disguise her voice? What the heck? I mean, he's had, he's had to have known this woman for years and years and years by this point. Um, yeah, it's just odd. But she's irrelevant to him because he's using her, right? Exactly. Exactly. He doesn't... There's no small talk. There is... He walks up to her and he says, let's get it on, and walks and assumes she's coming with him, and then they get it on, and then that happens, right? It's like, let me come into you, which is kind of a demand. Of course, it's a demand that she needs to get her way, too. But yet again, (laughs) the woman is seen here in the story as having little say or voice in what's happening. She's not seen as exactly human, but just a vessel. So she speaks of payment, so so they do their thing, and he doesn't ask for her name, he doesn't humanize her at all. She speaks of payment for services, and she cleverly tells him she wants personal items of his for payment. Now these items were, were the equivalent of like a driver's license and a credit card. So I want you to think of that, okay? If some woman comes up to me and says, your husband slept with me and got me pregnant, I'm going to say, oh, good grief, whatever, whatever. But if she produces a credit card (laughs) and a driver's license, and then I go surreptitiously go into his his wallet, and his driver's license gone and that credit card's gone, I'm going to think, oh. Terry's in trouble. Terry's in trouble. Those items clarified, identified Judah. She was smart. So he tries to get his credit cards and driver's license back. She's like, no. And then three months later, he hears that his daughter-in-law, she's still legally considered his daughter-in-law, is pregnant. Without any evidence, without even questioning her, he says, burn her to death. Don't you want to ask her? Because it could be a rumor, right? What if she just had a lot of burritos for an extended amount of time and she just looks a little, you know, right? What about some water weight or whatever? I don't know. But he just automatically assumes the worst. Okay, yeah, okay, killer, burner. Which burning was like the most extreme form of capital punishment in Israelites' time. It was saved for the worst of the atrocities. The worst. I mean, did he not just sleep with someone that was a prostitute three months ago? The hypocrisy, my friends, is awful. 
There was a woman in the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, she's been pastoring a church in Kentucky for 30 years. It's right up the street from the biggest Southern Baptist seminary in the United States. Just right up the street. This Al Moeller, who is over that particular seminary, calls for this church's dismissal from the SBC. Do you know who's preached in her church before? You're right, Al Moeller. The seminary has partnered with this church for years. Didn't bother them that a female had been, was the pastor. But now it does. Now it matters. And, you know, the rot and this slippery slope and all these things are going to happen if we don't do this. The hypocrisy is disgusting. Very much so. I think that's it. I, I don't know what else it could be. I just don't know. It's, uh, it's, um, I, I got to thinking this week, I can count on this hand. No, I shouldn't say that because I, I did teach a mixed couple Sunday school class a few years ago. There have been very few men in my life, I can say this, that are pastors that would tell you they learned something from me. And those same pastors, I probably could show you journals where I learned from them. And think highly of them. These are good teachers. These are good people. But they don't want to learn from me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So she's brought forward, and she has evidence. And he's like, oh, <laughs> yep, those are mine. You are far more righteous than me. I read uh, from a commentator, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who my friend Rabbi Brian recommended to me. And he said something about this passage that I'd never considered before that I thought was pretty fascinating. This confrontation that she has with her father-in-law is in private. She could have called him out in front of everybody. Probably should have, really, but she didn't. And there is a midrash, a Jewish rabbinic thought that says that um, whatever, is, whatever you bring to light that is shameful for a person is not good. And so it's not calling out the, de the misdeeds of others that are shameful to them. Now, it says nothing about abuse, physical, sexual, whatever. But I thought this was interesting because in this rabbinic tradition of Rabbi Sachs, they commend her for not humiliating Judah. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. Because he had no problem publicly humiliating her. And it's not about tit for tat. That's not what we do. That's not okay. But it just sat some kind of way in my heart. that I'm going to have to think about that for a long time. Now, I did think of a couple of instances in my life where I was publicly shamed for something stupid that I had done. I didn't harm anybody. I only harmed myself. And I remember that feeling of, and it was like at a youth group, like some kid 
knew something that I had done that nobody else really knew, and then he outed it in front of this whole youth group, and I'm like 16 years old, and I was humiliated to no end. And I thought, well, maybe it's kind of like that. I'm not really sure. Like, if you know something about somebody that is they're embarrassed about or I don't know. I'll let us all sit with that for the next few days and see how we feel. I think that's something, since it's such a new idea for me, maybe it's something I should wrestle with a little bit longer. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She did win. She got the race at this. So good. Because we have to think a little bit about what happened to Judah. I mean, I had to look it up. I couldn't remember. But I know Tamar. How interesting. In this Jewish interpretation, he said she cared for Judah, Judah far more than he ever cared for her. She protects his reputation, his standing in the community. Should she have called him out publicly? Maybe. But this is in a different world that, that we live in. And in the end, she received what she deserved, what she needed to survive. And her son Perez, one of the twins, is responsible for King David. What can we learn from Tamar? What do we learn from her? Anyone? Good. Yes. What good would it have done her to call him out, right? It's done. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's good. That's right. That's good. Yep. Yes. And knowing that he would assume that she was a prostitute, right? Yep. She's a smart young woman. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And she was a Canaanite. And she knew the law better than he did. Anyone else? Yes. Because she didn't call Judah out, maybe that was the opening she needed to either say, oh, she's more righteous than I am. She loves me a lot better. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. I'm like Brian from last week. I don't have any bow to tie this up in. I mean, it is what it is. It's a weird story, a weird people doing weird things, crazy, unacceptable, dehumanizing things, and yet it's there. And yet it matters because it carries on through the lineage of Jesus, and it's important. Y'all can go ahead. Yeah.
I was still trying to think of something clever to say and I got nothing. So let's just, let's just end it. <laughs>